If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Great Reputations, our series exploring the divisive legacies of some of history's biggest names. In today's episode, we'll be discussing French military and political leader Napoleon Bonaparte. Born on the island of Corsica in 1769, Napoleon trained to become an artillery officer and, upon graduating in 1785, quickly rose through the ranks during the years of the French Revolution from 1789 to 1799. In November 1799, Napoleon launched a coup that saw him gain political power as first consul and he crowned himself emperor five years later. The Napoleonic Wars that spanned the years from 1803 to 1815 pitted France against an array of coalitions of other European forces, with prominent French successes including the 1805 Battle of Austerlitz. However, following defeat in the Peninsular War against Spain, Portugal and the United Kingdom, and a catastrophic attempt to invade Russia in 1812, a coalition of forces defeated Napoleon in the Battle of Leipzig in 1813 and, five months later, forced him to abdicate. Despite retaking control of France in 1815, Napoleon was defeated in the Battle of Waterloo and exiled to St Helena, where he died in 1821. Hi, I'm Dave Andrews. I'm a Professor of Modern History at the University of Portsmouth. I've been a historian working on, on the French Revolution, 18th and 19th century French history in general for about 30 years now. Hi, I'm Laura O'Brien. I'm Associate Professor in Modern European History at Northumbria University. Um, I'm a cultural historian of modern France and at the moment I'm um, mostly occupied working on a project looking at representations of Napoleon in cinema and theatre since the 1790s. Thank you both for being here. We are talking today about Napoleon, his life, but also, I suppose, his legacy and his later reputation. There's lots that we can get into. I wanted to start, I suppose, by going back to the beginning of this story and to his early life, the first few decades of his life. What can we tell about him as a person from this period? And how did it shape his later worldview and his later story, I suppose? So, I mean, of course, famously, born on Corsica in Ajaccio in 1769. He is the second son of the Bonaparte family, parents Carlo Letizia. Carlo is a bit of a dodgy operator in many ways, but also tries to secure his family's legacy and fortune through playing off, I think, in some cases, the sort of different political powers that are trying to exert power over Corsica at this time. Probably the, the most important early formative event in Napoleon's life is when he sent to go to the military academy in Brienne in 1778 when he's nine. He spends the next six years there, and this is a very austere environment. It's run by an order of, of priests. He is there as what they call an élève du roi, which is a king's pupil. So he is a low-ranking aristocrat, technically, because Carlos had that recognised by the French state. But that is essentially kind of like a scholarship boy. So there's about 50 of these boys at Brienne. It's a very austere environment, but they don't do corporal punishment, which is interesting given the time period and this is something that he would later say is very formative for him in terms of the sort of simplicity of the lifestyle and this is something he would sort of say is you know taught him to survive in in hard situations classic image of him then as in terms of what he was like as a boy is that he was this sort of lonely rebel proud rebel you know corsican identity and fighting for being different and so on and he probably was very badly bullied in many ways because people joked about his accent, so on. He didn't speak French very clearly. He became very interested in this idea of Corsican independence, that he was Corsican, uh, Corsican above all. And when he goes to the École Militaire in Paris later on, there are cartoons of him rushing off to support Pauli that his fellow students drew of him to, to sort of make fun of him as this sort of very proud Corsican. 
he did have a difficult time, but he probably isn't this kind of, you know, loner, isolated, I suppose, future lone genius as he might want us to maybe think. He is, he does get on quite well. He's not a superstar by any means at school, but he is not perhaps as sort of isolated or as sort of a child ploughing the sort of lone furrow towards a future destiny that both he and his future biographers and people who've represented him in art and, and culture would want us to think. Um, so I think that moment when he is sent to school in France is absolutely fundamental because it takes him out of the family environment for really what is quite a long time and takes him away from Corsica for, for a long time, really until the beginning of the of the revolution. That's, you know, it's only the early 1790s when he can when he can go back and spend any amount of time at home. I think it's it's interesting just to pick up on what Laura was saying there, that this um, growing up and going through schooling in this period in the 1770s and the 1780s, thinking of yourself as a kind of lonely genius is very much a thing of the moment. Um, you know, th this is the era that the sort of late Enlightenment starting to shade towards romanticism, that young people of that generation of the 1760s and 70s are going to become the romantics. And one of the things that involves is, is a, a very great focus on the idea that you actually have a personality, that you're distinctive, and that if you're miserable, it's, it's, you know, it's because your circumstances have made you miserable and that you must surmount them and go forward. And you know, this echoes through novels and poetry and drama and things. This is, this is a generation, without any regard to politics at all, this is a generation which is just thinking of themselves in terms of personalities and cultures as destined for greatness and held back by their circumstances. And in, in a sense, the kind of the French Revolution falls into the lap of this generation as an opportunity to show themselves off in all the various ways that are going to come out over the decades ahead. And he, he finished at Brienne in 1784. And then the sort of the, the progression he makes from there is extraordinary. And it seems extraordinarily quick to us. What are the key moments in that? And how can we explain his, his elevation, I suppose? Well, I think there's, there's no him without the revolution. I mean, as David was just saying, it's like the revolution is the perfect opportunity for someone who wants to make a name for themselves. And, you know, I think when, when I talk to my students about what makes him stand out as this historical figure, I sort of say that there is, there's no way he would have done what he did without the revolution. It's not just political, it's about the opportunity to rise through the ranks in a way that wasn't permitted, that wasn't allowed in a system that primarily sort of sought to, to bring the officer class through from the ranks of the middle and upper ranking aristocracy. That's just the way it was. So for him, the revolution is what really makes it. I think it's like they're basically made for each other. I think this perfect opportunity. And when you get this sort of the loss of the aristocratic officer class from the French army in 1789, as you start to have the waves of emigration and the waves of sort of people resigning their commissions and in some cases going to support anti-revolutionary or counter-revolutionary forces in other European countries, that's when you have the opportunity for Napoleon or Napoleone, as he was at that time, to rise through the ranks and to make himself stand out. And as I said, he's not a superstar. He's not like, you know, graduating top of the class. He's not one of these sort of genius kids that's running through the ranks. But 1789 comes as exactly the right moment for him. And he also sees it as a kind of a moment for Corsica as well, which I think is quite interesting. He sees it as maybe this is the moment where the revolution will give us an opportunity to secure our independence. Given that France is talking about liberty and equality for all, maybe that can also apply for Corsica. So it fits into multiple aspects of his identity, both as this sort of enlightenment, I've sort of have the vision of him as sort of like this sort of enlightenment teen kind of young man who sees himself as a very deep thinker and having very important thoughts and so on, as so many of his contemporaries were, but then also someone who's dynamic and has a vision of being able to change something. So that's, he starts to rise through the ranks, he starts as an artillery officer famously, most significant sort of the first moment where he becomes known is the siege of Toulon, 1793, when they essentially break the siege on the city of Toulon on the French, the south French coast, which had been under siege by British forces. And that's really what begins to make his name. That's when you start to see this person being talked about in a way that isn't just rank and file, that this is someone who is, who is going to do something bigger over the, the years to come. Yeah, there's a very interesting contrast there between his, his progression in the regular army in these years from the, from the late 1780s to the early 1790s and what he also manages to do because, I mean, he progresses 
slowly through sort of lieutenancy towards captaincy over a number of years. And as an artillery officer, he's involved in sort of some, a couple of technical commissions and things like this. There's stuff going on around his regular army career. But he's also starts to have this parallel revolutionary career, attaining much more senior ranks in local National Guard formations because they're elective, which I think is, is starting to tell us that as his charisma is starting to come through. We have to imagine someone who's a, in regular military terms, a very, very junior officer indeed, uh, and yet battalions are willing to elect him as colonel or deputy colonel. And he's also right through until 1793, back and forth between France and Corsica for quite extended trips. And, and as Laura's saying, he's, he's working both ends of this equation. Partly, I think, you know, gen genuinely still interested in Corsican independence, genu but genuinely interested also in advancing his family's interests, his own profile. It is someone who's starting to understand himself as, as charismatic in practical ways, as actually being able to lead and inspire and stimulate. It's, it's interesting that we're talking here as much of him being a political operator as a military one, which I think sometimes gets flattened. We should talk about that, but also I wanted to explore with you both, do you think he was a good military commander? And if so, what some of his greatest successes were? Oh, he's one of the greatest military commanders of all time. He's a highly charismatic individual. And you have to hold those two things in one hand and the fact that politically he is a terrible, terrible person in the other simultaneously. And that's where you're going to be anytime you want to talk about Napoleon. He's staggeringly successful in doing things with military force. It's just that that's not always a good idea. And that's, that's the story of his life, essentially, from, from the mid-1790s onwards, is, is balancing his, his personal charisma, his drive, his ambition, his really, really outstanding leadership qualities with, with what he actually does in the political sphere, the systems he sets up, and what they say about what he thinks about everyone else who isn't him. I mean, yeah, I completely agree, and I think that's one of the reasons why he does... I think, continue to excite so many, excite interest, I guess is the word I would use, because there is this sort of binary, this tendency to slip into a binary sometimes of like either he's the worst person who ever lived or he's this perfect genius figure who was just really, really hard done by and so on. And actually, you know, and it's the classic historian's answer. Well, let's make it a bit more nuanced and think about it in a more complicated way. And it is, you do have to hold those two things together, as David said. You have to kind of be able to recognise what he achieved, which is exceptional and it is extraordinary. And you can, you can really understand why he captured the imagination then as now. You understand why he is able to sort of pull in people who really shouldn't be that interested in this sort of guy who is essentially a an artillery officer rising through the ranks, but suddenly becomes something that transcends what he actually is. It transcends the idea of a political figure, a military leader, and who really does sort of define or help to define, I guess, because he's not the only person who's changing the way we understand leadership and the relationship to charisma in this period, but he helps to reshape the way we think of what a leader looks like. I think what's really important about the way we think about his successes, it's, it's important not just to think about the sort of boots on the ground aspects of those successes, but also how they are then mediated back, not just to the people in France, but also to the people worldwide, to a global audience. I think this, with him, there's very much a sense of he's aware of having an audience all the time. He exists for an audience. And that, I think, is very modern about him. He's not just doing this for the people around him, his immediate the people in his immediate circle. He's, he projects an image of himself and of his military success and his political leadership that is explicitly intended for wider consumption. And I think that's something that's absolutely fascinating about, his, about the way he essentially kind of creates a form of modern leadership. And you see that from the very start. I mean, he's got that, what's it called, the Courrier, the newspaper of the Army of Italy, which is basically like a write-up of how great everything is and how great all the successes have been and how well he's been doing. And it's notionally for the soldiers, but really it's for people in France who are reading this at home, who are starting to put pictures of him up on their walls and to buy prints of him leading the attack over the bridge at Lodi. You know, he didn't actually do, but how and ever, that doesn't matter. What matters is they have a picture of him on their wall. And that, I think, is almost as important in terms of the success as the actual kind of the ways in which he does that. I know that it's very much a cultural historian talking, but to me there's something fascinating about the way he does those two things at the same time. And it is, I think, 
probably something he's learned from the revolutionary experience, the the dissemination of propaganda, what, what you can get away with in, in some sense if, if, you, if you control the media. And he, he does do this very, I mean, the, the, the newspaper of the Army of Italy is, is then followed when, when he's won the Italian campaign. Um, he, he sets up these two different newspapers, uh, one to appeal to the urban middle classes and one to appeal to the rural population. So supposedly with different political agendas, but in fact, both dedicated to promoting the fact that he's won and it's all going to be great. And he's doing this at the same time as he set up this kind of almost royal court just outside Milan, I think it is, in 1797. And there are some very, very sort of caustic eyewitness accounts of him conducting himself like a kind of prince in residence, while this modern propaganda um, apparatus is also churning in the background. And then swapping out of this role, you know, just sort of taking it off like a coat when he goes back to Paris and presenting himself as a humble Republican to Republican politicians who he wants them to give him a bigger job, a bigger army next time. So he's from the 1790s very clearly able to play these angles, his personal charisma and the structures into which he projects it. But he's also very clearly showing these signs of being autocratic, you know, that that for for him, the, you know, there's there's no distinction between commanding an army and leading in general. You tell people what to do, and if they don't do it, you get very cross. And and that that again is something that's going to follow on throughout his whole career. I want to get into this image management thread because it's, it sounds like one of the core things we should be talking about in this conversation. To what extent was this sort of intentional, almost weaponized image management central to how he was seen? And do you think it obscures things? Do you think it obscures, for instance, the fact that his achievements were group rather than solo successes? I think you've got to always see that element of it. I mean, if we, if we think of the famous image of him crossing the Alps... Uh, on on the, the rearing up horse. You know, one of the interesting things about that is he didn't even bother to pose for that picture. He just said, knock me out this picture where I look great. And they knocked it out in numerous copies. I mean, it, it, it was not sort of one picture to be hung in the Louvre. It was an act of propaganda in itself to create this image of what he'd done at a point in time where, you know, he's had the coup d'etat, he set up the consulate, he's on the way to thinking about making himself first consul for life. And this is, this is all part of that movement where you set yourself up as a hero to people who, after a decade of chaos, are in desperate need of a hero, and, and then you take power on the basis of being the person that they need, and you don't actually ask them if they want it because you assume that they need it. And this is another interesting thing about Napoleon going through the coup d'etat at the end of 1799, going into early 1800, wanting to ratify the fact that they've seized power brutally. So having a popular plebiscite, a referendum, and then faking the results. In order to vote in this referendum, you had to go along and sign a book in your local administrative office. If you wanted to vote against Napoleon, you literally had to sign your name in front of the officials to say no. And 1,500 brave people did. But um, you know, over a million people said yes. And then they just doubled that number randomly and announced that two or three million people had said yes, because it sounded better. And this is, again, this is another pattern that will follow through. Lip service to democracy, but just being in power and using that power to do anything you felt like. I think there is, yeah, the, the plebiscitary or the sort of referendum element in not just his empire, but obviously then you get the second empire, which is his nephew, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, and I could talk about him for a sort of very long time. But he does that as well. And I think in part, it's this sort of, it is about manipulating the idea of democracy, but it's also this idea that they can connect with the people, that they kind of almost don't need the thing in the middle. It's like, I connect with you because I know what you want and what you want is me because I'm a legend or I'm, I'm look how good I am, look how cool I am. And I think that's something that is, again, is, is something that we still have the legacies of in terms of modern political communication, even for notionally very boring middle-of-the-road middle elected politicians. There is still this idea that they're speaking to you, to you as the people, that you're connected with them in a very specific way. Just to come back to the sort of the painting of him on the St. Bernard Pass, the famous David depiction of him with the sort of the cloak flowing back behind him. 
I think the first thing to sort of say about it is, obviously, yes, there are multiple copies of it. Um, he doesn't like sitting for portraits. I think he only ever sits for like one or two, one of which he, Josephine literally had to hold him down to do, which I love. I love this image of like, Ruff! you're going to sit and you're going to have this thing painted and then you're going to leave. So he's not a, he's not a patient man. But this painting that, that David does, I think when you see it in the flesh, it is, it's a very large painting. It's not as large as David's coronation painting. Nothing is, but it is a very large painting. And even for someone coming to it with no kind of relationship to the story or relationship to him as a historical figure, you see it and you understand why it has an effect on people. It's not just the colour, it's not just the composition. It's just this incredibly exciting image of someone who is literally pointing the way forward. You know, he has that bare, that ungloved hand pointing ahead and that is absolutely vital. Um, in terms of conveying this idea of transformation of, as Hegel said, the sort of the spirit of the age on horseback. But also because he's he knows his history, um, being this sort of child formed in very particular Enlightenment educational kind of classics focused system, there are of course references to people of the past in there. So if you famously if you look on the sort of the rocks beneath, you see the names of Hannibal, names of Charlemagne. And bigger than everyone else, of course, is, is Bonaparte. So he's inserting himself into this sort of legacy, this continuum, I guess, of a kind of military, political, unifying leadership exemplified by people from the quite distant past as well. I think the, the coronation event itself in December 1804 in Paris at Notre Dame is, you could talk about it for years in terms of the symbolism and the way it is a perfect example of image management because notionally it looks really traditional. Like he's literally walking up, well, not walking up the central aisle because he comes in the side, but he does this whole movement around the spaces of the cathedral that he, wearing this enormous mantle that weighs, I don't know, it weighs, I think, something like 70 kilos or something, and he just can't wait to get it off. He's got a second outfit for later in the day, literally, which says a lot about him. But it's, it invokes all those things like Charlemagne. It invokes things like the Merovingians, sort of dynasties from the ancient French past to create the sense of continuity and legitimacy. He looks notionally like a king or like a monarch. So does his wife, Josephine. So do his siblings. So does everyone else who has got their special outfits that have been created and designed for this occasion to create this idea of this extraordinary impression of power. So it's very traditional looking in a lot of ways, but it's also incredibly modern because not just of, of the image, but also the way that the ceremony is set up. Yes, there's the famous moment of, of self-coronation, which was not something he didn't just grab the crown off the Pope, as people seem to suggest. That was always planned. The Pope is there as like a sort of endorsement. He's just, you know, the Concordat has been approved. The agreement between the Vatican and the Papal States and France to sort of restore Catholicism as the religion of the majority and give a bit more recognition to the Catholic Church. The Pope is there as sort of a, an approval for that. But then he also has this moment where the Pope goes off and disappears, and Napoleon Marx walks up this enormous flight of stairs to take a civil oath. So you have this bringing together of both divine authority on some level, even though it's not divine, he's, it's not the religious figure who's putting the crown on its head, it's him. And you have him taking this civil oath, this oath to the people this oath that shows him to be something other than a hereditary monarch. And I think one of the things that I find really interesting about that is sometimes it's used as this sort of sign of he just wants to be a king. He just wants to be like everybody else. But I think what, what scares other European powers about the coronation and about the image, and one of the reasons people deride it, I think, both at the time and subsequently, is because it's really a very revolutionary visual. He's not there because of who his dad was. He's not there because of the bloodline. He's not there because of an existing hereditary principle. He's made it happen because he wants it, because he can. And as a result, that kind of destabilizes the whole principle of monarchy that other European powers, uh, you know, have been, that have been at war with revolutionary France since, since 1792, that they're trying to, to hold up. And so he is even in the ermine and the silks and the heavily embroidered robes and the little booties and the, the sort of laurel wreath crown, even in that guise, he's still a revolutionary figure to the people on the outside. And I think that's there's something absolutely powerful and fascinating about how even in the most traditional looking moment of 
his rise to power, he is still seen as a sort of radical figure. Do you have concerns that this image making, this self mythologization almost, obscures some of the darker or more complex aspects of this story, say, for instance, the Napoleonic Wars? Well, <laughs> where, where do you begin with a question like that? I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> I, mean I, th- I, think, I think, again, it's, it's really important to think, to sort of to, to follow on from what Laura's saying there, that Napoleon represents this different vision from the older vision of the European system. And, and this, again, this, this is a kind of very, very, very complex and nuanced historical issue. But all, the, the crowned heads of Europe you know, fought each other a lot. You know, they fought lots and lots of wars. But they also understood at some level that this was a system in which wars had limits and that the objective of every war was eventually some kind of diplomatic settlement in which things were just you know, in terms of mediating sometimes, you know, irreconcilable claims where force had to be used, you know, and, but, and this is a thing that's gone back hundreds of years. And what Napoleon is notoriously does is to break this system, uh, and, and I mean, the, the, the American scholar Paul Schrader wrote about this at great length. He breaks this system. One of the ways he breaks it is, is through, you know, magnificent, glorious military force. But another way he breaks it is just by being a shameless oath-breaker. Napoleon doesn't believe in the enforceability of treaties. He thinks treaties are things you use to make other people do things. And if you don't like the outcome, you just declare war on them again. Or in the case of, of Spain, for instance, which, which is, you know, is bullied by revolutionary France into becoming an ally of France in 1796, you end up under Napoleon making a whole series of treaties with that country, trying to force it to do things, trying to give away its possessions, trying to carve up Spain and Portugal. And then a little further down the line, you just remove the royal family of Spain and replace it with your brother. And you do all these things for reasons which your propagandists outline in, at length and in detail, but in the end you do them because you can, because you're an autocrat, not just at the level of the individual state, but at the idea of there being a European state system. And Napoleon in, in his later years becomes extremely caustic about Europe as, as a concept and says some very rude things uh, about Europe being at his mercy and him doing what he wants because he can. And, and when you look at the relationship between sort of war and peace, war and politics, through this decade after his coronation, th- this is the consistent picture. He pushes and pushes and pushes. He, he never accepts that anyone else can limit what he wants to do. That's the real dark side internationally. Of course, within France, within the empire, you, you have authoritarianism at the civil level. There is censorship, there are no free elections, there is no meaningful concept of democracy in action. France is a police state, and it's, it's, it's sort of only in the light of later, much, much worse things in the 20th century that you might be tempted to downplay the authoritarianism of this era. But in terms of something which claims to build itself on popular legitimacy, it is completely uninterested in what the general population think. It's very interesting in what they can be made to think, but, but not in the idea they might have views of their own. And that's consistent all the way through uh, to 1815. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. I think it is obviously worth sort of noting that, that as David said, like this, it is by comparison, we're using the term police state is accurate for that time, but it is important not to see it as a sort of 20th century totalitarian police state. And I think sometimes that comparison does get made, which does make me uncomfortable because for various reasons. And it isn't that. It's not it's not what we might assume when we think of a police state in terms of what we have what we have, have seen it become in more recent uh, human history. But there is the authoritarian element. There is the sort of rowing back of things that the revolution I mean the revolution is not a feminist endeavor by any means. That's putting it mildly. But there are things that the civil code that rolls back in terms of sort of essentially codifying a a misogynistic position around the civil status of women um, and marriage and so on and removing some of the things like facility at the ease of divorce, which is fine if you're him, but not if you're your average French woman. So there's all sorts of sort of things that are done to kind of roll back. I suppose aspects of the revolution that aren't necessarily the most obvious things, but we can sort of point to as being positive from a more contemporary perspective. And I think that is obviously very important as well. And there's also, of course, what happens in the Caribbean in terms of the decision to send the French army back in and then eventually to reimpose slavery in some French possessions. It's not a complete sort of blanket reimposition, but it is... Only because they couldn't couldn't get get away away with it. it. And I mean, he did subsequently sort of say in Saint Helena, whoops, probably shouldn't have done that. Should have been pals with Toussaint Louverture and maybe sort of worked together and had a little ally in the Caribbean because, of course, he then would have been able to sort of use an extraordinary sort of our military and political force to play off Britain and Spain in their posi- their imperial possessions. And of course, that's, you know, there's something that that is something that thankfully the, the more re- the bicentenary of his death two years ago was very explicit about acknowledging and discussing. I think it's worth saying it's not the first time people have acknowledged that. It's not as if everyone's sort of walking around since 1802 thinking, gosh, he never did anything bad with this. with this. People were very aware of this and very angry about it in some cases. But as ever, it's a little bit more kind of complicated and and a, a difficult sort of legacy to try to to try to tease out. But it is something that, thankfully, I don't think you can talk you can't talk about the story now without acknowledging this. And I think that's been something that has sort of shifted a little bit in terms of the way we discuss the narrative of the story from 1775 really up until 1815. So I think yes, when we focus just on him and on this idea of the, the glorious image. Sometimes it does overshadow these things. Of course it does. But I think there's also scope and there's increasing scope for understanding the story in a way that is not just about sort of explicit blanket denunciation or heroization, but also about sort of looking at him and his legacy and what he set up and what he tried to set up in a more holistic way, in a way that, that, that goes beyond just the good or bad binaries of, of the past. We'll talk some more in a bit about the way his public image, I suppose, has become flattened in the popular imagination. But you mentioned their law of the Napoleonic Code, which we should talk a bit more about now. For people who might not know anything about that at all, what do people need to know to make sense of that part of the story? The the interesting thing to think about is, you know, since 1790, since very early in the French revolutionary process, uh, the finest legal minds in France have been working themselves to death trying to figure out what to do with law codes, structures of law, which they see as essentially grounded in history. This, this is one of the things, the big problems that the French Revolution is trying to overcome. Everything has so much past sitting on it that you can't do anything without a revolution. But even after you've had a political revolution, you look at things like the law, e- even in the debates in the National Assembly, there are people who say, well, you can't change the law because it's, it's the law. It just exists. But they spend over a decade actually working towards codifying new systems of law, you know, getting rid of the complications and just the the regional differences of laws that apply in France and constructing new ones. And what eventually becomes the Code Napoleon, which is is the code of, of civil law deal relationships between individuals, whether it be marriage and divorce, property and inheritance, etc., etc. That is pulled together out of the work of people that have been working on it for over a decade. And how far you think Napoleon is personally responsible for that, again, depends how much of the propaganda you want to believe. 
Um, it was clearly discussed in front of him, and, and there are all sorts of stories about what he did and didn't want to see in it. But it's it's one of the things where we can say in that period, 1800 to 1804, you're seeing the sort of the, the, the good aspects of monarchy come out in what Napoleon's able to do by being a single figurehead, by being a single authoritative will, by pushing forward and the work of a state bureaucracy, of a state political class, he's getting things done. He's created that concordat with the church and settled a hideous conflict which has cost hundreds of thousands of lives over the previous decade. He started to think about reconciling with the aristocracy, which again changing the whole relationship between revolutionary France and the rest of Europe, and he's pushed on with having these law codes produced at the same time as they're physically pacifying the country. Which, which has been subject to, to rampant criminality, a real breakdown of law and order in the later 1790s. So all of these things, both the kind of the, the physical manifestation of law and order and also this conceptual reconstruction, what the revolution has been trying to do for a decade, he actually succeeds in pushing that through. You know, and there's a point in time around 1803 when... Europe is at peace. The Peace of Amiens with Britain has been signed. And shortly after this, the Code Napoleon and so on is going to be published. And around then, you know, if history had become radically different at that point, you know, Napoleon could have been one of the great peacemakers of, of time. But another different decade was, was about to happen. And that, that's the kind of sort of structural relationship you're thinking about. And I think as well as that, in terms of his legacy, I mean, you know, there is, I think it's Jeffrey Ellis talks about this idea that, like, we want to see him as either, is he a Charlemagne or a Caesar? But I think what he actually says, is, some, is he a Justinian in terms of his big legacy is civil reorganisation and the sort of civil restructuring, the, the codification of, or the final implementation of this sort of revolutionary, what, what David was saying, this idea of how do we work out the law, but also make it revolutionary? How do we make this new structure? Because the civil code and the, the various codes that come after it, the penal code, commercial codes, lots of different codes, they still hold sway in terms of the French legal system, with some modification, obviously, but they still essentially form the bedrock of the French legal system and of many European countries' legal systems. It's very different from the legal systems that exist in, in Britain and obviously in Ireland as well, because essentially the Irish legal system is a version of the, the British legal system. It wasn't changed very much. So there's a disconnect, I think, in terms of the sort of this a continental European system that is essentially comes from this sort of the, the Napoleonic codification of law and of civil structures. And that, I think, is, is one of the biggest legacies of, of the entire thing, as is the bureaucratic system, the centralisation the model of the prefect and the sort of the, the structures in which the prefect reports upwards to the central state. And while modern French history is in many ways a story of centralization and decentralization and people handing off power and taking it back for themselves, culminating in the Fifth Republic, which we have now, which is much more sort of centralized and in the, the sort of power concentrated in the figure of the president than had been before that, and that's set up in 1958 under de Gaulle. That in many ways is is a product of the story that begins with the civil code or around 1800 with the sort of the process of setting up these different codes. And that, I think, is probably the most sort of significant legacy, the thing that people live with on a daily basis in, in France and in other European countries. That, I think, is the biggest legacy that he left. I'm not sure if that's what he would have necessarily wanted to leave, but I think that is the thing that has been left, I think, in terms of his his ongoing impact. I wanted to talk about his downfall, but I wondered if we could do that in a, the context of his wider peaks and troughs of his reputation through his life. When was he at his highest and when was he at his lowest and why was that? Because I think there's something so interesting about the, young, the younger phase, sort of the pre-1804 phase. I tend to sort of go to that period and think of the drama of his sort of rise to power in that period. But then I think in terms of the sort of military success, I think probably 1804, 1805, certainly with Austerlitz, I think that's the point of, that's the point where he's sort of very much still in this kind of dynamic mode, still sort of pushing things forward. And I think it's the point where you can see the Grande Armée, what the great army then emerges from, the sort of the, the revolutionary armies. He and obviously many, many others are putting in place with sort of very different kind of training regimes and so on. You can really see them at their peak. 
I think if, if you're looking at it from that perspective, in terms of his reputation, in terms of his image, in terms of his successes, probably that period, sort of 1805, 1806, is sort of where I would, is, is one of the kind of key moments for him, as well as that kind of initial rise to power, or the initial sort of escalation from Italy um, onwards. Although you still then have to talk about Egypt, which happens in the middle of that, and that's just awful, for all sorts of reasons. If I was to sort of say, yeah, when is peak Napoleon? I think that's that's probably when I would say peak Napoleon is. But there's all sorts of downfalls in within. There's minor downfalls. There's mini downfalls. There's peaks and troughs all the way through. It's not a reign that is just straight up and then a dramatic collapse in 1812, leading down to 1814, and then into 1815 and, and on to death in 1821. It's not that simple. And I think in terms of his longer-term legacy, could talk about it for for hours about sort of various shifts in his reputation and again as i said earlier how people are able to pick and choose the napoleons that they want to celebrate and the napoleons that they want to maybe not think about too much that isn't a very direct answer but that's i think that's a very it reflects the complexity i think of of his story and i i think complementary to all of that you you could take a different view on on that later period and certainly, from the point of view of his critics from the left, you might see a kind of peak Napoleon around 1810, 1811, when he is clearly regarding himself as the master of Europe. He holds court in places like Dresden, very, very far from the actual boundaries of France. He's planted himself in East Central Europe. He, he has the monarchs of Europe coming to pay courts to him. He is rude and dismissive to all of them. He's in the process of trying to bully Russia. In, into, into doing more against Britain and being part of this continental system more effectively. He has no difficulty imagining uh, defeating Russia militarily by invading them. The thought of looking at the map and seeing all that territory that he would need to cover doesn't bother him at all. In some of his private talk then, and even after the invasion of Russia has started, he's quite happy to imagine traipsing all the way over the Caucasus and through Iran into British India and finally smashing the people that he's always wanted to get his hands on ever since Nelson trapped him in Egypt in 1798. All this is going on. You know, there is, there is ample evidence of the, the massive scope of his vision of self, of being capable of doing all of this and dra- dragging along, of course, his whole extended family as junior monarchs with him. And while he's being like this, of course, he is also elbow deep in the Spanish ulcer, that the Peninsular War is not being won all the way through this latter period. But that, that's one kind of peak Napoleon, where, where he is dramatically understanding himself as the ruler of all he surveys. And then you have some other kind of peak Napoleons after that, I think, that the moment in the middle of, seven, of 1813, where he just uses a truce which Austria has arranged, where Metternich is absolutely desperate to get a peace settlement. And Napoleon just uses this truce to build up his military forces because when it's over, he's going to start fighting again and nobody can stop him. You know, again, that that sense of this sort of unstoppable belief that he can win, that if he wins, if he defeats his enemies, he can impose his will on them. But then we see, you know, six, eight months after that, an- another kind of peak Napoleon in these, these terrible winter battles in early 1814 inside the frontiers of France, where really with strikingly small numbers of troops at his disposal, Napoleon is shuttling backwards and forwards, punching the Allied armies repeatedly in the face, making it very difficult for them to advance on Paris, except eventually they simply have the overwhelming numbers that they cannot be stopped. You know, but there is that lightning flash there of a Napoleon who was nearly 20 years younger when he could do that kind of stuff in Italy, you know, and lead, leading up to Austerlitz. He's still capable in 1814 of being his younger self on the battlefield. And, and yet, of course, in the end, it's his own marshals and his own ministers that say, enough is enough. This cannot go on. And then a year later, they'll do it all again because he's Napoleon. David, you caused something of a stir on Twitter. We should now call it X, the social media site, earlier this year. Among the things you tweeted were that Napoleon used the entire resources of state and empire to make himself look cool to future generations. There's a lot to get into, (laughs) which is, and I just want to get into it a bit. Do you think that he is now still seen as being cool? 
Absolutely, yes. I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the the response to making simple factual statements on on the internet demonstrates that quite clearly. You can really, really annoy a lot of people by suggesting that Napoleon is not a stainless hero, that he is an anti-democrat. He is, in the end, a tyrant in in the sense in which tyranny had been understood since the ancient world. He is unaccountable. He breaks things. He breaks systems. He breaks people. And, and again, my old mentor, Norman Hampson, long departed now, used to say that the, the, the reason he could not stand Napoleon Bonaparte was because Napoleon Bonaparte said, my income is 100,000 men a year. You know, and that's 100,000 deaths on the battlefield and from disease in the camp and from horrible festering wounds and from all these other kind of things that the, 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 the pursuit of power through warfare inevitably led to. And all the different moments in which he didn't have to start another fight, Napoleon would always start that fight. And that, that in the end, is, is something that I, I think we should come to terms with. In terms of civil life and politics, he is not interested in what anyone else thinks. He is not going to give up power. And if he gestures with lip service towards giving up power in 1815, I don't think he meant it because he never meant it before. And on the military side, he is always willing to sacrifice huge numbers of men's lives to try to achieve what he wants, regardless of what anyone else thinks. And you can't not see that without trying not to see that. I mean, I, I obviously completely agree. And I think in terms of the sort of the human cost of these wars, which again are not are something that he sustains, but is not something that he necessarily begins. I think that's also worth noting. I think it is worth noting, though, that he isn't the only person to try to harness the entire resources of his state to try to make himself look good. He's doing what people have done in political, military, monarchical leadership from the very beginning, and what politicians still do in terms of the image that they try to project. I mean, I think David Bell's book, Men on Horseback, is so good about the sort of this idea of the relationship between image, charisma, and the importance of the age of revolutions in the global age of revolutions in changing this and in, in how we, the, the legacy that we have now, the image of leadership is, is fundamentally a legacy of that period. And I think the first illustration in that book is a picture of a very tanned, handsome John F. Kennedy on a beach. And what he's sort of saying is this image of the young, dynamic politician is a, the heir of, he is the inheritor of this sort of model of leadership and how image manipulation is done and it just becomes a standard. I think the, the flip side of that, what I would say though, is that you can, yes, you can annoy an awful lot of people by saying that he's not this stainless hero. We've all seen it. I think you can also annoy an awful lot of people just by mentioning his name, <laughs> which is something <laughs> I have personally experienced. And when you get this sort of, you know, I remember doing a screening of uh, Gonsus Napoleon in Tyneside Cinema in Newcastle in like 2016, 2017. And that film stops with the invasion of Italy because there was, it was going, that was going to be part one. It was going to be five more parts, which never got made, tragically. And at the end, a man turned around to me and said, well, that just shows he was crazy. And I was like, we haven't even got into that. Like, I mean, we've just stopped. But his image of this man, all he had to see was the bicorn. And he was like, crazy, here we go. And I thought that was really interesting to me that this was still, all you have to do is say the name and somebody gets annoyed or it becomes this sort of, he becomes the byword for everything that's wrong, for everything that's bad, for everything that is not. That is, I think it's, again, it's particularly a sort of an Anglosphere sort of thing where it's become everything I disagree with is Napoleon. And it's the typical trope is to sort of invoke Waterloo or to invoke some sort of form of the defeat or to sort of say, well, this person, my friend is trying to be like Napoleon, which in some ways he has been, but that's another discussion. Or, you know, this person is, you know, the classic thing in the, in the Second World War was Hitler is being like Napoleon. And that sort of complex, like, the sort of appropriation of the Napoleonic legacy by the occupying German forces is really interesting for that because it raises these kind of very complex issues around French national identity and where Napoleon sits within that. And you, uh, interestingly, you do actually get members of the sort of very extended Bonaparte family who are aristocrats or see themselves as aristocrats, but who are also resistance fighters because they can't bear this idea of the legacy being sullied by these occupying forces. There's something really interesting about that. So I think there's both the flip side of you can annoy an awful lot of people by saying he's not perfect, but you can also annoy an awful lot of people just by mentioning him 
or just by doing something that involves him or get yelled at by, you know, sort of saying, you can't do anything about him because he's a very bad man. And he is, and he was. And that's why he's so annoyingly interesting, I think, because he is simultaneously terrible and at the same time endlessly fascinating because of the image, because of the way he is able to sort of harness some, a word that we've used a lot, actually, in this discussion from the very beginning, to use charisma, to use, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think what the young people are calling riz. There's a riz, he's charismatic. There is something so charismatic about him. And that's clearly there, as David said from the very beginning. He's not a physically very impressive person from the very beginning. He's small, he's slight. He's not small as Cruikshank would want you to think. He's not that small. He's about five foot. <laughs> two foot, two foot six. Foot six right? So by comparison, <laughs> Wellington must be like 10 foot nine or whatever. So that's British propaganda. I mean, these, that is, that is, I think that's one of the most lasting legacies of, of anti-Napoleonic propaganda, which begins, well, even before he becomes first consul for life, which I think is fascinating. That the idea of the tiny man is not accurate. He's about five foot six, seven. He, but he's very slight. He's a bit sort of unimpressive as a young man. And yet he's still able to get them to sort of come round on his side. So that says something about the level of charisma that we're working with here. There is a, a sort of an ongoing or a long-term discussion about at what point in his life it, does he lose a sense of the Bonaparte and fall completely into the Napoleon. So you see that there's almost like two people in one. We've talked about this idea that there are multiple Napoleons that he can put on and off the guise of the everyman leader, the man who communicates directly with his soldiers and who is loved by many of them and was well into the 19th century for that, and the ruler and the monarch and the man, this little sort of embroidered cape in Milan or in Rome. The sort of idea that there can be multiple Napoleons. That idea is really important, I think. And I think that's why he's so interesting, I think, that he's able to sort of manipulate who he needs to be at any moment in time. But yeah, there's a point where he kind of forgets that there's almost, that there's someone else, that he that he made this image for himself. I'm not explaining this very well, but you know what I mean. There's almost a point where he sort of slips completely into the Napoleon figure as opposed to the Napoleon Bonaparte that he was. And that, I think, as a again, as a cultural historian, I think there's something really interesting about that, how that continues to shape the way he's represented to us, both as historians, but also in terms of popular culture. On the subject of popular culture, we're talking ahead of the release of a new film about Napoleon. We've obviously not seen it yet. It's not out for a few months when we're talking. Does the fact the film of this scale, of this budget, of this statue is being released surprise you? And do you have any thoughts about it more generally? I have all the thoughts. Um, as <laughs> anyone who knows me is like, please stop talking about this film. I have many thoughts. Firstly, I'm fast. You're talking about this idea, Matt, of the scale. It's interesting to me that this is a Napoleon film. It looks like a very traditional Napoleon film in the sense that it is a straight biopic. Originally, it was pitched as it was just going to be about his rise to power. I thought it was, it was almost going to kind of take the same time period as the Gons film, which seemed sensible to me. And now it seems like it's going to be a start to finish. And I'm intrigued just to see how Ridley Scott's going to do that in the span of three hours or however long this film actually is. That was interesting to me because in the terms of the sort of films about him that have been made in maybe the last 20, 30 years, they've tended to kind of move away from that sort of battlefield drama, big member, loads of extras, dramatic scenes sort of approach that you would have seen with, for example, the likes of Sergei Bondarchuk's Waterloo from 1970, or indeed his, his, the battle scenes he shows in, war, in his War and Peace from the, from the 60s, where he has the countless Red Army soldiers as the extras. What's happened in Napoleonic cinema more in the last sort of 30 years has been much more about him on a human scale. So there's been a couple of films about St. Helena, some of which have played with this idea that he escaped, but also that he sort of is a sort of that there's a double that's used to kind of get him off the island and so on. And that I think is very interesting that now we've got Ridley Scott going back to the sort of traditional military biopic of this person that has been attempted uh, many, many times in, in cinematic history. So I think there's something really interesting about that. And I think the fact that he clearly made a decision as a director not to just do The Rise to Power is very interesting to me. I'd like, to, you know, if I got the chance to speak to him, I'd like to sort of ask, why did you decide to push all the way through? Was it just the lure of doing these big battle sequences that you couldn't resist? I think it's interesting in the reception of the trailer that we've had so far. It's quite a brief trailer, but the one that we've seen, a lot of the discussion on social media has been, 
a certain kind of person, shall we say, rubbing their hands with glee at these battle sequences. And of course, I'm sure a lot of it is CGI now. I don't I suspect he doesn't have the tens of thousands of soldiers of as extras that Bondarchuk would have had back in the day. But it's it's striking to me that that's the thing people have focused on, that it's this kind of military thing. And whereas I'm more interested in thinking about how Scott's Napoleon is going to appear to us, or how Scott and Joaquin Phoenix's Napoleon is going to appear to us. I could talk for a long time about the casting, but I won't go into that now because I might not stop. Well, the, the, cast, the casting is very Weird. strange. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's just put that out there. I mean, uh, Phoenix is a, a generation older. This is Joaquin Phoenix, the actor who's playing Napoleon. Is a generation older than Napoleon in the 1790s. He's, I think he's almost 50, isn't he? So he's almost the age Napoleon was when he died. Yes, exactly. You know, which is, fun. you know, if, if they'd done the whole thing as like him sitting on St. Helena, yes. reminiscing, yes. that Amazing. would make sense, you know, because old Napoleon just appears in these scenes from when he was actually young and it doesn't matter because it's like a dream sequence. But there's no evidence of that. This, this is played straight down the line. Uh, I mean, there were, and there were a couple of scenes in the trailer where I thought he, he looks like he's wearing a corset. Yeah. He's just, he just can't move like a young man. And I don't, as, as a historian of, of Napoleon and, and of his charisma and so on, I don't understand why you do that. Yeah. What, what's involved in that? Especially when you've then cast a very young actress as Josephine. And of course, the whole thing about Josephine is that she is older and she has... I think this idea that her, oh, she's a little bit older. She's she's older, but she's lived. Like This is a woman who's been in prison. This is a woman who's come very close to the guillotine. Just going on the trailer and sort of wondering about the level of charisma that's conveyed. He seems very quiet. He seems very mumbly. I know that this is me working with a specific image of, of how Napoleon spoke or moved or talked, and we can't know that. But I'm interested as to how you convey someone's extraordinary rise to power that is so reliant on their charisma with a performance that doesn't necessarily, at least in the few minutes that we've seen, has the kind of charismatic power. I mean, I'm, I'm fully ready to be completely surprised. Finally, given the complexity of the subject we've been talking about here today and its power to annoy people, as you've both experienced, as you've both said, how do you think people might see Napoleon in 50 years' time? Do you think some of the heat might have gone out of this or do you think it will still be as live a thing as it is now? I don't know. I mean, you know, Peter Gale writes Napoleon for and against in the 1940s, summarising over a century of furious argument. And, and admitting then, I mean, there, there, there is no resolution. You know, there's, there's the for and there's the against. And, and here we are, 80 years on from that, still capable of getting rolled up by all these things. I mean, partly because, you know, we, we're still in a kind of modernity which is shaped by the Napoleonic legacy. I mean, Laura's talked about the sort of practical senses of legal codes and so on, but also, and, and increasingly in, in, in the media age, by the idea of a, a sort of charismatic demagogic leadership, you know, which, which is fundamentally different to sort of charismatic traditional leadership of the old European monarchies, fundamentally comes into existence with the age of Napoleon and the George Washingtons and the Bolivars and all the rest that are around him. And we are still subject to that. You know, we, we, we might in some respects be subjected to its disintegration. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. I think we'll probably still be having, historians will probably still be having the conversation in 50 years in much the same way. The only thing I would say is that I would hope that maybe shifts in the way he is written about historically, but also understood more generally, that, that shifts that I would hope for, that we're starting to see, I think, in some of the work that's being done on him and his legacies and his image, that that will have perhaps taken us a little bit further away from the, the old school for and against approach and again, you know, I could go, go on about this in terms of de in some detail about the kind of historiographical shifts. But in terms of thinking about the way, you know, things like issues like gender, culture, representation, sort of imperial structures, taking it away from just him and complexifying it a little bit more, I think will make us, will hopefully help us to have a more sort of nuanced discussion. But I think, yeah, there's even still, it's it's impossible to kind of shift entirely away from that sort of single figure and I, I think about the fact that for my own interest I went to I was in I've been in Paris for the last few weeks and I went to Anvalide where Napoleon was buried on the 15th of August which is his birthday and I just went there just to see just to see out of my own curiosity 
And it was rammed. Now, it wasn't rammed with people who were like, we're here for his birthday, but it was rammed with people from all over the world. It was rammed with people who are still being pulled in to his orbit to see this, to, to be close to this force. That I, I mean, I'd really like to ask people, you know, why are you here? What have you come for? And I'm sure many of them would have said it was on our list in the guidebooks. That's what we do. But I'd also like to see, you know, how do they understand him and what is the relationship that they have with him and how this image that this figure still manages to exert, that he would pull people into his orbit, that they're willing to go and stand and crowd around this enormous sort of periphery sarcophagus and look at this really quite horrible statue of him that they've set up down in the crypt. That, I think, is fascinating to me, that he still exerts that kind of that kind of pull. You can make your own destiny, and destiny is something Napoleon is obsessed with from the very beginning. I think that continues, that probably explains a lot about why he continues to exert a fascination, and probably why we will still be talking about this in 50 years, hopefully with a little bit less of the heat, in every sense. That was Laura O'Brien in conversation with David Andrus, talking to me, Matt Elton. And don't forget you can hear more episodes in this series by heading to historyextra.com forward slash great reputations. <laughs>